Welcome to the ERMI Podcast. I'm Joel Applebaum, Chief Content Officer at ERMI. And for over 40 years, ERMI has been an industry leader in educating and informing insurance risk management professionals like you. In this episode, based on a snap talk presented at the 41st ERMI Construction Risk Conference, Alexis Bradshaw, Senior Vice President of Construction and Infrastructure at Marsh, will outline best practices for brokers regarding the review of construction contracts. We hope you enjoy it. Um, so I work on the North American infrastructure team at Marsh. I think I'm back your strip making there. Um, where we see a lot of contracts. Uh, and I'm grateful you all stayed for a session on contract review. It's not the uh, sexiest topic of the conference, but I do think it's important. And uh, in 15 minutes, hopefully I can't bore you all to death. But um, you know, in my role, we see a six-page equipment lease, a 600-page concession agreement. I think the only common theme, no matter the request, is that we typically, as brokers, don't have enough time or as much information as we'd like before we review the insurance specifications. So what I'd like to touch on here today, again, with only 15 minutes, there's only so much detail we can get into, but I think there are some key bits of information that you can extract either from a contract or from your client before reviewing an insurance clause and you know providing an opinion. And this is where <clears throat> I'll give my we're not lawyers disclaimer so you can find SDV or a law firm for like a proper full contract review. We're not redlining the whole contract. I'm sure Marsh wants me to say that, but um, we're only opining on the insurance sections, but there's so much information that can be gleaned from the rest of the contract that makes that a more you know informative review. Uh, so we'll start off thinking about, you know, when you have a smaller project, uh, probably a shorter contract and certainly a shorter turnaround time. A lot of these things feel super obvious, but again, in the pace of construction, bidding environments, there's a lot going on. You know, there's many times where I don't receive the full contract. I just get an insurance clause. And so I think, you know, it's helpful to push back even when the situation may feel obvious. So identifying the parties, really only two key things to keep in mind here, especially if you have a client that might joint venture frequently, if they have a lot of subsidiaries, affiliates, just confirm you know, who is signing that contract and also who is their counterparty. This is framing the context for your insurance review. You need to understand if, you know, is this with a landlord? Is this with an owner, a contractor, a subcontractor? All of this is gonna frame the context in which you're reviewing the insurance clause. And that really um, brings us to the second point, which is whether the contract is incoming or outgoing. And I struggled to even include this point on here. And then, of course, a few weeks ago, I had a bid director send me an email with a red line snippet from a contract saying, you know, can we evidence this coverage? And we could. We, we had the professional liability coverage they wanted. We had the limits. But as I dug in a bit further, you know, I learned this was actually an outgoing downstream contract for a consultant, an engineering consultant. And in fact, they needed to evidence professional liability to us. So, you know, while it may seem obvious in the request and these things come in quick, it can be really important to confirm because, um, quite frankly, the study they were doing was, was something we certainly needed professional liability coverage for. Um, so, you know, with any incoming or outgoing contract, it's pretty basic. If, you know, if it's an outgoing contract, you really want to make sure that the coverages and the limits you're requiring of that entity are appropriate. If it's a general contractor versus a trade versus an engineering consultant, there may be different policies you need. There's certainly different limits you need out of those different entities. So, you know, I find the insurance can get copy and pasted over from contract to contract at times, and these things need to be, you know, flushed out whether they're appropriate or not. 
and you know the limits that you're requiring of these entities. You know, sometimes things are just not commercially viable these days, and it's better to kind of flush that out earlier on in negotiating a contract while you've still got um, you know maybe other issues on the table, and you can address these things. And so incoming. Essentially, you're doing the same thing, but you're looking, you know, from your client's perspective, if you can either already meet with policies you have in place or if you're willing to place insurance to meet the requirements in this contract. And again, pretty simple, but the most important piece here is, is it's appropriate. The copy and pasting, you know, sometimes I had a, a job recently where there was like a marine requirement left over from something. I was like, we have no marine coverage. And they were like, no, we're just going to sign it and like get going and we'll talk about it. I was like, no, no, because depending on who the counterparty is, if they, you know, if they, if they leave their job and the new person who comes in doesn't feel like making an exception for you because they don't understand that you don't really have that exposure, it's just better to get it dealt with you know, upfront. So incoming or outgoing, just making sure that the actual coverages and limits being required are appropriate, I think are super key. And then, you know, next that gets us into scope of work. I feel I can't emphasize this enough. Sometimes as insurance brokers, I think, you know, getting us real details on the scope sometimes gets overlooked. And, um, you know, I, again, had a job the other day where we were being required to bring project-specific cyber. That seemed really inappropriate, dug into the scope. They were JVing, a new network was gonna be created. In fact, we needed project-specific cyber. That's a huge additional cost. So to get that flushed out before you give feedback on the pricing, very important. Um, and then actually had a outgoing contract I was working on with a client for a few months. It was started off as a $5 million scope of work, pretty simple, very simple insurance clause. I was like, we're not gonna beat these guys up. They're not you know, doing some soil sampling, whatever. You know, things go on. Two months later, there's like $20 million, and I see the scope section has been redlined, and it's like two pages longer than it used to be, and now we have to edit the insurance clause accordingly because we needed more policies. We certainly needed higher limits, so making sure that that scope and what you're requiring you know, are at least uh, aligned in some ways is super important. And the last point for sort of smaller projects to, to try and extract, I think, either from the contract itself or, or just from your client, their legal counsel, is the level of indemnity <clears throat> that is either being transferred or accepted. And again, we're not lawyers. You can find SDV for the indemnity language and the level and all those different things that you should use. But I do think as brokers, we can help you know, at least give feedback as to how your insurance will respond, mainly what level of additional insured endorsement are you providing or being provided. And again, that way, if there's a gap in any of this coverage while you're still negotiating, you can maybe flush that out um, in your discussions. So next, um, looking at larger projects that hopefully have a longer turnaround time, but not always the case. Uh, I would note that the first four items are still important to flush out on a larger contract as well, but then I would, you know, they additionally getting into these is, is usually pretty important. And I started with scope of work again because, like I said, I kind of can't emphasize enough how much I think sometimes, you know, either we don't have a full copy of the contract with a really detailed scope, or we have a client that maybe we assume is like kind of doing the same thing they always do, right? Like, oh, they just do this type of road work. It's fine. This is what they always do. But, you know, depending on where they're doing it, whom they're doing it with, it just it can really alter how you view the risk. And so for larger projects, I think particularly digging into the scope will illuminate whether you know, project-specific limits may be needed. You know, we have some general contractors who do work all around the country and they don't want to bring their corporate program into New York. 
You know, and if you're an owner, you need to know that they're going to want to buy project-specific insurance for good reason. You know, they don't want to renew that policy every year with New York labor law claims on it or something like that. So, and maybe you're an upstream party that knows your contractor's, you know, quite busy, huge backlog. You don't want to share their limits, you know, with your project and everything else they have going on. So just some consideration around that because, again, that can be a big cost factor to be providing feedback on when you're reviewing an insurance specification. Um, and the other really important reason to dig into scope I find all the time is you learn about these other contracts that are out there. So there's a lender's agreement, and now we've got some lender's you know, requirements we need to meet as well. Um, oftentimes, you'll find a huge part of a uh, scope is being subcontracted out, and now we need to review that subcontract, make sure we're not creating gaps in anything. So, you know, just really flushing out. If you can get an org chart, that's often quite helpful. <laughs> you know, as much information as you can get in terms of how everything is flowing so that the insurance and, you know, all the terms and conditions, I think I forgot to mention, but incoming or outgoing, another thing you really want to pay attention to in addition to the coverages and the limits is getting those terms and conditions in place. It's, you know, we're all used to it, waiver of subrogation, other insurance clauses, primary non-contributory, but you don't want to sign off on it without that stuff. Because again, once the contract's executed, you've kind of lost your, your cards at the table there to go back and negotiate those points. Um, and then for procurement method, uh, as brokers, not, you know, so much we need to do here, but I think an understanding is important. Are we living in you know, design, bid, build, CM at risk world? Are we living in design, build world? Who is holding the design contract? That's a huge risk. Professional liability is expensive. We really need to know where that's sitting because if you have, you know, design, bid, build, and CM at risk, the owner is likely holding that design contract. And as a contractor, you should probably be able to find in that contract some additional uh, time or compensation if a design error were to occur. But, and in that case, if you're representing the owner, maybe an OPPI type product is also important to explore. Um, and then, uh, sorry, oh, my five minute warning, okay. It's hard to do contract review in 15 minutes. So procurement method, and then if you're the contractor, if you're in design build land, you wanna look at a CPPI, maybe more coverage under your GL, you know, the 2280 versus 79. Maybe you want more limits in the GL to defend things because in your professional policy, defense will erode the limits. So just understanding where the risk sits. Same with payment structure, not too much we're doing here as brokers, but if your client is giving a max cost for a project and you have auditable policies, if you have large deductibles, make sure you've priced that appropriately. Um, site conditions, I think this becomes uh, pretty you know, important to just you know, check these clauses kind of along the lines of scope and indemnity. What is the client doing? What level of liability have we accepted for this? Because I think you know your contractor's pollution liability, your pollution legal liability. You know these are necessary policies, but they respond to third-party claims for unknown events. I think there's sometimes a lot of confusion as to you know that there's some first-party cleanup costs available to you. No, you know this is not something you are really benefiting from in any first-party way. So I think being very clear, if your client has accepted particularly you know known pre-existing conditions unknown from a first party perspective, and then also any archeological and paleontological conditions that can truly delay a project that really needs to be flushed out and, and may have some coverage under a builder's risk. But again, if you don't know until you've explored these sections of a contract, you can't provide an insurance solution. Um, so uh, last, last point is force majeure. And again, last, we're not lawyers, disclaimer, but I really think brokers can help with force majeure clauses because sometimes there's a gap 
in the knowledge between you know the actual contract lawyer and the bid team and what is insurance responding to. I've had some interesting projects and locations that were seriously NatCat exposed where I think, you know, we went into it thinking, yeah, these will all be force majeure events. You know, we have a horrible hurricane. We'll get some relief for that. And sometimes the perception is, no, these are actually pretty regular events in this area. You should be able to plan for this. So don't assume, um, obviously, ensuring something like earthquake risk in California versus New York is going to be very different. It might need a different consideration in your force majeure clause. And, um, you know, there also may be in really big contracts delay events, compensation events. So understanding all of these, talking with carriers about where you do have relief in a contract, making sure they understand that scenario as well can be very important. And then, you know, recently with uh, all the issues we're having in, in coverage for certain things, I think it can be critical to at least let your, your client, let the lawyers know, you know, what things maybe they think are insurable that are not insurable for a given project. Um, had a really big you know, renewables deal going on somewhere where you could not secure hail coverage. Hail had to become a force majeure event. It was not in the contract. It was like all your basic stuff. But quite frankly, if we had a major loss from a hail event, you know, everyone would have been kind of backwards on it. So important to get through and, you know, dig into the details. Again, why the scope just becomes so important. I really think it helps inform, you know, all the other things you're, you're opining on throughout the rest of the insurance clause there. Um, so with that, in conclusion, always read the entire contract when you actually have a copy of it and have the time, but that is a world we don't often live in. Uh, so when you don't have time, I would really encourage you to really you know, focus on extracting either you know, critical items from the contract or just sitting down with your client and saying, can we confirm this you know, with the risk team, the bid team, whoever's got the information, just make sure there's um, you know, some clarity and understanding of the risks and then you know, can't say it enough, but the larger, the more complex, or just the more funky something might be. I have a very tiny project right now, but it's using new technology that's never been tested, and it's it's quite interesting to try and ensure. But again, the earlier you get in there, the more you can flag these issues up front while your client's still negotiating this contract. I think you know the more beneficial uh, impact we can have. So thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the ERMI podcast, recorded at the ERMI Construction Risk Conference in November of 2021. If you missed the conference because it was sold out, it's not too late to get access to the nine on-demand sessions recorded at the conference. To sign up, just visit ERMI.com, select conferences, and then go to Construction Risk Conference. Thanks for listening.